I have been married to Andrew Keswick for ten years now. We met in 1978 when I was 23 years old and he was 31. It was one of those proverbial whirlwind romances. I fell blindly, madly, irrevocably in love with him. And he with me, as I was eventually to discover. Andrew, who is English, had been living in New York for seven years when we met. He was considered to be one of the boy wonders of Madison Avenue, one of those brilliant advertising men, a natural in the business. I worked in the copy department of the same agency, and at the time, despite my lowly position, I rather fancied myself as a writer of slick but convincing advertising copy. Andrew Keswick seemed to agree. If his compliments about my work went to my head, then he himself went straight to my heart. Of course, I was very young then, and even though I was a graduate of Radcliffe, I think I was most probably rather naive for my educational background, age, and upbringing. I was a slow starter, I suppose. In any event, Andrew captivated me entirely. To me, he was a dashing and sophisticated figure, and his very Englishness plus his mellifluous cultivated voice set him apart medium of height and build. He had pleasant, clean-cut looks, dark brown hair, and candid eyes set wide apart. In fact, his eyes were his most arresting feature, of the brightest blue and thickly lashed. I don't think I've ever seen eyes so vividly blue in my life before, or ever again, except in Clarissa and Jamie, our six-year-old twins who have inherited them from their father. We began to go out together, and at once I discovered that I was completely at ease with him. I felt comfortable, very natural in his presence. It was as though I had known him forever, yet there was so much that intrigued me about him and his life before we met, so much to learn about him. Andrew and I had been seeing each other for only two months when he whisked me off to London for a long weekend to meet his mother. Diana Keswick and I became friends instantly. In a variety of different ways, she's proved to be loyal and devoted to me, and she is a woman I truly love, respect, and admire. Many qualities make her unique in my eyes, not the least of which is her warm and understanding heart. That weekend in London which was actually my first trip to England, remains vivid in my mind to this very day. We had only been there for 24 hours when Andrew asked me to marry him. Naturally, I'd said I would. I told him that I loved him as much as he loved me, and we celebrated our engagement by taking his mother to dinner at Claridge's on Sunday night before flying back to New York on Monday morning. On the return journey... I kept glancing surreptitiously at the third finger of my left hand, admiring the antique sapphire ring gleaming on it. Andrew had given me the ring just before we had gone out to our celebration dinner, explaining that it had belonged first to his grandmother and then to Diana. You'll be the third Keswick wife to wear it, Mal. He had smiled in that special, very loving way of his as he slipped it on my finger. Twelve weeks after our first dinner date, Andrew Keswick and I were married at St. Bartholomew's Church on Park Avenue. 
The only person who was not entirely overjoyed by this sudden union was my mother. Everyone is going to think it's a shotgun wedding, she kept muttering, throwing me piercing glances as she had rushed to have the invitations engraved and hurriedly planned a reception to be held at the Pierre Hotel on Fifth Avenue. The reason for the quickness of the marriage was simply because we wanted to be together, to live together, and we saw no reason to wait to drag out a long engagement. Not all brides enjoy their weddings. I loved mine. I was euphoric throughout the church ceremony and the reception. After all, it was the most important day of my life. But furthermore, I had also managed to outwit my mother and get my own way in everything. No mean feat, I might add, when it came to social situations. By my own choice and with Andrew's acquiescence, the affair was tiny. Both of our mothers were present, of course, as well as a few relatives and friends of Andrew's and mine. Andrew's father was dead. Mine wasn't. Although my mother behaved as though he were, inasmuch as he had left her some years before and gone to live in the Middle East. In consequence of this, she thought of him as being non-existent. But exist he did for me, and very much so. We corresponded on a regular basis, and we spent as much time together as we could whenever he came to the States. And he flew to New York to give me, his only daughter, away. He departed as soon as it was decent to do so. My father, an archaeologist, seems to prefer the past to the present, so he had rushed back to his current dig. He had fled my mother permanently some years before when I was 18, I had gone off to Cambridge, Massachusetts and my new life at Radcliffe College, and it was as though there was no longer a good reason for him to stay in the relationship, which had become extremely difficult for him to sustain. That they never divorced I always found odd. It was something of a mystery to me, given the circumstances. I don't believe my mother has ever understood my father. Sometimes I've wondered why they married in the first place. They're such opposites. My father is from an intellectual family of academics and writers. My mother from a family of affluent real estate developers of some social standing. And they have never shared the same interests. My mother has never understood me either. But then my mother, charming and sweet though she can be, has not been blessed with very much insight into people. I love my mother, and I know she loves me. But for years now, ever since I was a teenager, I found her rather trying to be with. Unquestionably, there is a certain shallowness to her, and this is something which dismays me. She is forever concerned with her social standing, her social life, and her appearance. Not much else interests her, really. To me, it seems such an empty, meaningless life for any woman to lead. I'm more like my father, and as much as I'm somewhat introspective and serious-minded. In many ways, the man I married greatly resembles my father in character. Like Daddy, Andrew cares, and he is honorable, strong, straightforward, and dependable. Andrew is my first love, my only love. There will never be anyone else for me. Suddenly, 
I felt the warmth of the sun on my face as its rays came filtering through the branches of the big apple tree, and I pushed myself up from the wrought iron seat where I sat. Realizing that the day must now begin, I walked back to the house. It was Friday, the 1st of July, and I had no time to waste today. I had planned a special weekend for Andrew, Jamie, and Lissa, and my mother-in-law, who was visiting us from England as she does every year. Monday, the 4th of July, was to be our big summer celebration. As I approached the house, I could not help thinking how beautiful it looked this morning gleaming white in the bright sunlight set against a backdrop of mixed green foliage under a sky of periwinkle blue. Andrew and I fell in love with Indian Meadows the minute we set eyes on it, although it wasn't called Indian Meadows then. It didn't have a name at all. I called it from local lore, which had it that centuries ago Indians had lived in the meadows below the hill upon which our house was built. We found the house quite by accident. No, that's not exactly true when I look back. The house found us. It reached out to us like a living thing, and when, for the first time, we stepped over the threshold into that lovely low-ceilinged entrance hall, I knew at once that it would be ours. It was as though it had been waiting for us to make it whole, waiting for us to make it happy again. And this we have done. Everyone who visits us is struck by the feeling of tranquility and happiness, the warm and welcoming atmosphere that pervades it, and which envelops everyone the moment they come through the front door. 